0: Blue, blue 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 there we go and then up yeah there we go Hello and welcome to conversations with the voice of reason I'm your host Benjamin Boyce and today's conversant is Cactus Chew, who will introduce himself he is a very smart guy he's running a podcast called meta politics in that he explores various ways in which politics are being shaped by and shaping discourse. Uh, and that's kind of what we cover in this conversation. We talk a lot about narrative warfare and the media environment that we are all existing within, and certain trends that are kind of pushing us towards, I guess, some sort of nihilistic endpoint of inter conflict. A lot of big words from my mouth right now. Do check out his podcast. It's linked down in the description, as is his Twitter and his Clubhouse handle. He's very active on Clubhouse. He's a very great interlocutor, and uh, I think I pronounced that correctly. He's somebody pretty awesome to speak with and to hear speak. So without further ado, here is Cactus Chew. How do I introduce you? Like, What's your basic function in the world? Are you a social scientist, economist, chef? (laughs) (laughs)
1: Uh, I don't know because I've given this tagline now to multiple people like this is just a thing that I I heard from a fellow podcaster of, like you should always have an intro line to to give to people. But I mm. I realized especially like I, I realized after going on Clubhouse that like, people like recognize that this is the game that's being played and recognize that I just give the same intro line. So I'm not sure if <laughs> I should keep doing that. But the intro line is uh, Cactus True, mathematician, uh, political commentator, and pod- and host of Metapolitics podcast. And and I think that we can still use it for for. Uh, okay. At it's least got a few rain. more times.
0: How's Clubhouse treating you? When did you start on that? You're very active. Um, I don't know at this point. Um, joined February
1: 5th, 2021. Okay. Yeah, I actually wanted to stay out of it for quite a while before... Basically, the only reason I joined it initially was just that uh, people told me that it was... Unpar- an unparalleled place to podcast market and uh i mean they ended up being right but also i feel like uh i don't know i don't i'm not the type of person who likes social media and it does give me those types of vibes but hmm. uh, well it's um it's a necessary evil i guess plus i think i'm able to help a lot of other people so
0: you do have the capacity to shape discourse repeatedly i've seen you uh Pivot conversation.
1: Yeah, I feel like with a lot of the problem is that you're tr- trying to you're trying to get to the end of a road, right? And in, in terms of developing political ideas, the problem is that everyone in in the same room with you is at various points along that road, right? So okay. someone just just jumping in might be um, might be very um, interested in the kind of uh, what is the mentality of woke for example in those types of rooms what is the kind of uh sources of uh indoctrination or whatever right Mm -hmm. the the very intro um cynical theories type of stuff while someone much later on might be interested in the what do you do about it in the uh structural approaches uh institutions etc and just navigating some sort of track that allows everyone to move down that path Mm-hmm. Is uh, is the great struggle, but <laughs> hey, it, 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 it's better than nothing.
0: You sound like an unwitting educator. I don't
1: know, like, I've I've taught before, nothing, nothing close to this. I used to teach computer science, actually, uh, and the nice thing about, especially about teaching at a teaching at a private. Uh, organization, which is what I did, is that you can select the students. And especially with, thankfully, the control that I was given over my classes, I could basically reorganize between classes uh, as much as I wished. And that's just an amazing its amazing capability or amazing uh, privilege, I guess. I really, I, I feel really bad for all of the public school teachers who are given kind of a slate of students. Who clearly are not at the same ability level and are just asked to, uh, especially with the way that it's done, just here's the curriculum, here is a set of students who are obviously not performing the same, and you are Hmm. to give the curriculum to the class as it is written and do the best you can with regards to that. And it's like, before you even enter the classroom, it's already a losing battle, unfortunately. Hmm. But yeah, I think actually that that mindset has a lot to contribute to uh, to how how uh, to organize a room effectively in Clubhouse. Uh,
0: in what way do you? Think uh, you I can mean, the, do that I mean
1: the uh, public public school teacher mindset, like being able to uh, push through and navigate those types of unwinnable situations, can often be analog especially in some big rooms yeah the difference is that in clubhouse it's self-selected right which actually gives you a lot of a lot of room
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so you mentioned a road that everybody's on uh, or uh at different parts on where are you on this road are you at the club, kind of waving people over to your to your place
1: yeah, yeah, we're all we're all following off the cliff together. Now, I don't it, it's actually quite strange for me because I'm not someone who uh really cared too much about the culture war type of thing beforehand, especially before clubhouse. I mean, it intensified to the point where I had to care about it, uh even on the podcast on uh, metapolitics. But okay. really I started off with a sort of approach at looking at media, what are the dynamics of these various systems, how could it lead to corruption, how does it lead to corruption? And actually, it was very non-US-centric at the beginning, because the niche was really people who were looking for a broader understanding of democracy and of media across the world, right? So we'd cover things like Lebanon, we'd cover things like like the whole Putin saga and uh, Alexei Navalny. And those would be the moments where you would see, here's the fine line between uh, democratic progress or uh, truth-seeking and the manipulations against it. And you would kind of try to broaden out that approach, look at the principles of what can you learn, what can you take away from that. And unfortunately, these phenomena just kept getting closer and closer to home, the kind of balancing act between uh, a successful media system and a an unsuccessful media system in terms of actually getting to something that's representative of the real world Mm -hmm. until, um, quite frankly, the majority of these cases now, the majority of, of situations where media is being manipulated and there's some core principle that we can take out of it, most of that comes from the United States and it comes from the culture wars. So it's actually a really uh, backwards priority, I think, where most people start learning about uh, the culture wars, and then they start learning about the things uh, behind it, the forces that actually lead to those yeah. uh, those events. I call that like the the uh, height pill. Uh, after John Height, you oh. start thinking that <laughs> you start thinking that th- this is a question of politics, and then you take the height pill, and you realize that it's a question of psychology, yeah. and. Uh, I think I took the hype pill before even, uh, before even looking at the culture war, before looking at American politics in specific. And so I'm well down the institutional lane. I'm well down at looking at what are the actual incentives and economic forces that lead us to this point. And honestly, not that tired of the culture war, not that even exposed to the culture war itself.
0: Not that tired in what way?
1: In that I just... There are a lot of people who approach these types of culture war issues, and they just hear it and they're like, oh, not again. And I'm not like that, I think, just because I haven't really experienced it that much. I'm not someone who typically tunes into those types of arguments. And I usually just ignore the more uh, culture-based policies or culture-based news stories or arguments in my typical daily life, and really only came to it in recent months because it was being so intertwined with media manipulation. Yeah. And so I don't think I have that like instinctive exhaustion that many people who cover these areas do.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Andrew Yang just tweeted out uh, today about some, uh, some transcript of a New York times meeting where it looks to be the case that they decided to inject race into every story. And I bring that up because media is well, as a question do you think media is fueling the culture war and why is media fueling this culture war
1: yeah I absolutely think that it's not Not only is the culture war downstream of media but it's the entire it's the entire system of politics if you actually just look at, a, at lines between various metrics of media polarization things like uh and things like the emotional characteristic of headlines versus the partisan uh, polarization in things like the Senate and things like voting records, then uh, you can see a pretty direct correlation, if not a causation. Mm-hmm. And so you see that this media has a significant impact on the actual way that people treat specific news stories, regardless of the news stories themselves. You can think of the quote-unquote uh Obamacare versus Affordable Care Act debate, where literally the name of the policy, even though they refer to the exact same thing, will drastically change public favorability ratings by something like 20%, right? Mm. So you end up with the situation where I mean, I'm not, I don't want to ever seem like I'm looking down on people who are parsing things through this media apparatus, because quite frankly, they're not stupid. They just don't have a lot of time on their hands. If you're mm. focused on your job, if you're focused on other things, then you don't have time to look through all the political context, to look through uh, what are the incentives behind the media station that I'm looking at. You probably just flick to one or the other and settle down and uh, yeah. try to get your brief summary of the day. I think... The difference that has actually happened is that various political, uh, politically interested parties, not necessarily just the parties themselves, but various factions, various activist groups, etc., has realized that control of the media has much uh, more of an effect than anything else that they could do. And mm-hmm. so that's become the focal point of the game, and you get the polarization that you expect from that.
0: Do you think that uh, media competency, so-called, is the path forward? And if so, what are the basic principles that you think that the average news uh, ingester uh, should be aware of or practice?
1: I mean, the problem is that you have an arms race. And you have an arms race between people who don't really care enough to fight in the arms race and are just trying to keep themselves afloat. And people whose very livelihoods are built up on creating better and better tools and manipulate and becoming emotionally manipulative and becoming uh, manipulative in a way that that works regardless of someone's inherent political uh, inherent political leanings. So all these people who are working in lobby groups, who are working in political parties, who are representatives themselves, all of them have an interest that is tied to their very well-being, right? Whereas the people who are actually casting those votes, this actually affects them very marginally. Each individual vote, each individual piece of media doesn't change their lives nearly as much as, for example, a pay raise or another hour put into their work. However, this accumulation of power by these representatives, by these interested groups, stacks up over time such that You get this duopoly that's put into place, this uh, this um, iron tight control over various spheres of media that create a really toxic environment for anyone who's trying to provide an alternate source of information, anyone who's trying to push back against uh, some type of hegemony, whether it's on the left or on the right, and so even if people aren't necessarily aware of this, even if this isn't something that people are, uh, are immediately uh, looking to as the cause of many of their problems, I think it's something that builds up over time and can accumulate into something that is very damaging to them.
0: And then add social media and uh, watch acceleration happen.
1: Yeah, I mean... Social media is just a question of doing the same silly and manipulative things much better than was done traditionally. The actual motives and incentives involved, if you look at, for example, the social dilemma uh lines, all of those lines describe mass media equally as effectively as they describe uh, as they describe social media at least with regards to the intention piece of it the quote unquote people are worth more as dead slabs of attention, just like whales are worth more as uh, oil than they are alive right All mm-hmm. of those things can be true just as much about c n n as it is about Facebook but the question is, uh, p- some people don't like it when that's taken to the extreme, for good reason. The extreme is incredibly damaging, but uh, that doesn't really change the underlying incentives in all of these uh, different platforms and different sources at the very beginning, right?
0: Which is uh, what are those which is incentives? to take the attention,
1: right? You yes. had you had in the Nixon era, follow the money. Now in twenty twenty, it's follow the attention. Whatever news story can uh, can uh, enrapture many people, can p- keep people watching regardless of whether it's something that's actually beneficial to them, regardless of whether it's something that's actually valuable to them. And this means things that enrage people, things that activate that sort of uh, limbic system. Uh, those things are going to be the most valuable. And if you follow the attention, then you end up following the money. And that's exactly what you see with uh, mass media, exactly what you see with social media.
0: Yeah, a lowest common denominator of uh, attention would be somewhere, the reptilian brain, where we can just get triggered. when we're Yeah,
1: and there. you see this yeah. playing out in everything from uh, the sampling that happens, what news stories are important. Certainly not the ones that are actually killing the most Americans, but instead the ones that we can attribute to some motive without actually uh, doing the due diligence required to do so, right? Mm-hmm. Every single... Or I don't want to use too broad of a brush, because I'm sure there are some good journalists out there, right? You can probably name some examples off the top of your head. But uh, at, with regards to what ends up winning economically, what ends up being most successful, what ends up becoming hegemonic, it mm-hmm. it does tend to be those things that are very good at hijacking your attention.
0: You said that there is a toxic this duopoly leads to a toxic environment for those who are seeking to provide alternative source of uh, information what do you mean by that what what creates a toxicness uh, for the independent journalist or content creator
1: yeah so once you have uh, once you have something that is foundationally irresponsible to reality right once you have something whose business model is uh, is based on attracting attention instead of uh, providing a valuable product in terms of a product that reflects what is actually happening out there in the world. If that gets called out, that is still a non-zero factor in terms of their ability to generate revenue, right? You don't get the same experience from watching uh, outrage news if you know in your head, in the back of your mind, that this is intended to outrage you. This is intended to be uh, emotionally captivating and not necessarily to give me a good product. So how do you avoid that while still reaping the benefit of having that outrage news mechanic? Well, it's easy. You silence any dissenters. And so there's an active interest for many of these groups to target those that would actually bring this idea to the forefront, which would actually bring to the forefront the mechanisms that are happening. And you've seen this happen to various core figures. Um not to specifically endorse any given one of them, but for example, uh, Glenn Greenwald, for example, Matt Taibbi, Barry Weiss, this has happened uh, almost always in direct response to uh, their actions in calling out one type of hegemony or the other. Mm -hmm. In the case of Greenwald, it's actually happened several times to him repeatedly, whether it's by Americans, by Bolsonaro, uh, or any other
0: source. Well, maybe he's just a glutton for punishment.
1: I don't know. Maybe, yeah, maybe maybe Glenn actually just uh, just uh, is a fan of it all, but who knows? Yeah.
0: yeah. So if um, within the uh, you know Substack, uh, the only fans of content creation, YouTube. <laughs> Uh, Right. There, there is the possibility for smaller independent operators to directly link up with a fan base and provide enough support for them to continue to do real work or quality work in the journalistic space. Are you cynical about that? Do you think that that's a path forward? Or do you think it's doomed to failure?
1: I mean, it depends what you mean by success and failure, right? You've probably heard of the thousand true fans
0: model by now. Uh, could you say that to the general audience?
1: Uh, sure. So the 1,000 true fans model is essentially that if you have 1,000 true fans, each of them gives you 50 bucks a year, for example, right, around uh, $4 a month, then that's actually a fairly sustainable livelihood, right, depending on your costs. And so you don't actually need that many uh, audience members to create a sustainable living for yourself. Mm-hmm. However, that's the ultimate question of success, right, is Success just being able to live a fairly decent middle-class life as a content creator? I mean, for many people, it is, especially if you're non-political. If you're someone who is interested in changing the ultimate dialogue, though, this kind of long tail of YouTube or long tail of podcasting isn't going to do it, unfortunately. And of course, there are broader networks that you can connect to, uh, people that in specific that you can influence. But Mm -hmm. actually just staying in uh, the sort of narrow lane without actually accumulating, without actually getting growth, without actually interacting with many of the bigger players in media, I don't think is going to change the uh, broader political landscape, unfortunately.
0: Do you think that there's a—this might sound like a stupid question, but do you think that there's a need or an urgent need to change that grand uh, circus up there? Uh, Won't it always just be— You know, just a bunch of flashing lights—a big carnival of uh, uh, spectacle—and will it not just always be like that? And something a couple feet below that rowdy surface is where the actual uh, thinking is going on, and then the actual long-term, yeah, long-term thinking and policymaking.
1: Yeah, I mean, you could look at various points in time and say that uh, many of these cases are a political circus, but. There are differences in the circuses, right? There are differences yeah. this is between a circus that's actively malicious towards the vast majority of Americans, actively uh, mm-hmm. malicious to many kind of common sense or many uh, evidently true science backed opinions versus, uh, or even not just opinions, but of basic facts versus a clown car that is a bit distracting, is a bit performative and over dramatic, but ultimately reflects some debate that impacts people in real life. Right? There's mm. a real quantitative difference to that, even if mm. uh, the veneer of uh, showmanship is still the same. And I think focusing on making that marginal impact is the best uh, people who are concerned about media quality can ultimately do.
0: What uh, what qualifies as a marginal change then? Just waking up individuals to being aware of what they're looking at,
1: yeah, the thing that I've also often said is that if you change ten people's minds, you change ten people's minds right that's that's not a small that's not not a small thing to do, especially if that's something that's actively being done by a large share of Americans right or a large share of people uh, worldwide who are undergoing these uh, media circumstances right especially if you leverage what I call network effects, right? If you leverage uh, the growth that scales based on the number of people involved, whether you're a political movement, whether you're a media outlet, etc., if you get each of the people that you convince uh, to kind of walk away from this from this narrative warfare, if you convince each of those people not only to do that, but to repeat the same process for themselves, then this hits the realm of exponential growth and it uh, becomes broadly impactful relatively quickly with only a few iterations. Mm-hmm. So actually understanding those kind of fundamental mathematical dynamics with regards to how information is shared, how opinions change, mm-hmm. is something that can be incredibly beneficial to, uh, to act incrementally but end up with a significant result.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Do you think that there could be a guiding narrative or a guiding set of values that would help uh, somebody who wants to make marginal change with regards to the circus and reality? Uh, Like, what would guide them and then scale up to uh, other people wanting to play along and then figuring out that these rules, playing this game is actually more rewarding in a variety of ways?
1: Yeah, well, we're talking about meaning-seeking here, right?
0: Yes, meaning yeah
1: we're talking about finding finding a story that we can tell ourselves that uh that gives us some motivation to do this because quite frankly saying that oh uh politics is self-destructive and uh you're being essentially taxed for your time and quite often taxed for your actual money with regards to these uh political interests that's short-term motivation. That's like something that can get you angry in and of itself. But it's Mm -hmm. not something that builds a sustainable movement. And I think that that's something that we are looking towards. And quite frankly, I don't have one singular answer, right? People tend to vary, individuals differ, and we need to adapt this type of narrative for as many people. But from what I've seen, and I think your people in your audience will mostly be able to identify with one of these three groups— you end up with, uh, as I said, three types of narratives in terms of combating this. One is the free speech absolutist crowd, the principled liberals who really see the value of the current societal rules, right? Of things like uh, free and open debate, freedom of association, and uh, avoiding persecution. Mm -hmm. And uh, they are often people who have studied history, they are often people who have very, a very uh, moral understanding of what's at stake. And that is one possible inroad. Uh, the others are, uh, the second I think I've seen is this kind of uh, standard right-wing bull-in-a-China-shop approach where they very clearly identify the problem and they're just willing to do uh, almost whatever it takes. They're willing to to put the kitchen sink uh, at the problem. And you can kind of encapsulate this with the Donald Trump approach, right? Mm, and mm-hmm. obviously, most people are not
0: as extreme as, as Trump. Most people and are not... Donald Trump uh, would be the sink that's being thrown. At yes. The okay, Just to make that clear. <laughs>
1: yeah. And people wouldn't, aren't necessarily um, using that as sort of the policy basis. But Mm -hmm. the the core uh meaning there is of uh of pure rejection of pure uh pushback
0: yeah and the third i've seen is kind of yeah yeah
1: and the third i've seen is the compassionate or empathetic route where uh people tend to understand suffering that's uh going that many of these people are going through people in the quote unquote woke movement or people in other extremist movements, uh, e- even extremist movements on the right and seek to kind of be these people's therapist of uh, helping them along, helping them find some other source of meaning in their life, uh, de-radicalizing them, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And they, their guiding motive is the human aspect, the, uh, ability to form a connection, the ability for redemption, and once again, these core moral values. Mm-hmm. The difficulty comes in actually tying all these groups together and tying all of these groups in a way that surmounts an institutional challenge. Because the most common problem that I found with actually all three of these groups is that their seeking of meaning or their foundational appeal to what they perceive as their enemy these uh they perceive their enemy as uh the individuals right the the uh Hmm. play-by-play cultists that they encounter either on social media in real life etc the people who are repeating these extremist ideologies and they really want to either help or defeat the individual and this comes from the fact that, that actually all three of these groups are heavily individually minded. But if you actually look at the source of the problem, this really rapidly, at the very least, creates an inefficiency because you're unfortunately not dealing with just a cult. You're dealing with a cult factory, a, a system of uh, institutions, of political interests, of media that can infinitely generate more of these people and can kind of undo any progress you make on the individual level really quickly. Actually, Hmm. you know this very well, probably, because of the whole incident with Evergreen. And something that uh, Brett Weinstein has said is that he's managed to get through to these people on many occasions. The problem is that they go back to their circles, and there's a self, uh, you can call a self-correcting mechanism that reinforces people into Uh, rejoining these types of ideologies. That is what I call the uh, cult factory. And looking at those dynamics, looking at those incentives of why really this small ideological minority, and here I mean minority as in they believe something that almost no one believes, is able to punch above their weight so much in terms of really uh, creating a culture, creating an activist uh, lens that Uh, becomes dominant in these institutions is that they understand those levers of power, and those levers of power, in turn, cycle back into creating these cultists that we all encounter now. But simply kind of punching at the problem is like punching a waterfall, right? It's not not very effective, and these attempts to treat individual cultists or individual uh, extremists, etc., is going to end up being at the very least, very time-consuming for a very low reward. And in the more cynical view, which happens to be my view, actually distracting people from the active problem and the active solutions that can be pursued.
0: That, on the surface, or on the face of it, contradicts what you're saying about if you can change 10 people's minds and then get them to change 10 more people's minds, uh, That you said that that was a viable fa- path towards changing the course. Yeah, that
1: is things. a viable path. It's just that you actually have to succeed in changing those people's minds, right? Okay. And okay. more often than not, those people whose minds are actually willing to be changed are not actually not just more often than not, but the vast majority and actually... Almost every single one of the peoples whose minds are actually permanently changed, who don't revert to these kind of cult-like incentives, are those who aren't involved in the movement in the first place. It's the spectators, it's the people sitting on the sidelines, who you can then convince and you can then uh, help build up into recognizing this problem as it is. Right. So those are two different paths to pursue, and I don't really think they're in contradiction.
0: Okay. So with regards to the cult factory... Uh, which is another hot topic, at least. Uh, we talk about media, we talk about uh, the academy, and we probably talk about to one degree or another, there's this corporate influence that's going on. Uh, do you see those as three distinct things? Are there more? And then how can we uh, you know, kind of look at those all together and then separate into how do we deal with each one of those uh, parts of the system?
1: Yeah, there are other people who are much better at dealing with one specific point uh, one specific element of uh, the in the various uh, institutions. Uh, for example, Peter Boghossian seems to have a very concrete plan for dealing with uh, universities or higher education. But uh, the way to look at this as an abstraction is to look at it as, a, as an incentive game. Their core strength comes obviously not in numbers because their ideology is held by very few in actuality. But instead on changing the incentives on uh, what happens if you agree with them and what happens if you don't. Mm-hmm. Someone who disagrees with them uh, gets incredibly outsized punishment or incredibly outside uh, vengeance, right, in the terms of either uh, on harassment, going after their employers, uh, tarring their name with false and baseless accusations, etc. And those who agree with them, uh, even though they're believing in Uh, many of them believing in a conspiracy theory, face very little personal consequence. And so the incentive game, if you think of it as sort of a market calculation, although that is going to have some some inaccuracies when it comes to human psychology, but if you try to look at this as sort of a simplification, then if you're going to face an incredibly heavy cost, say like 10,000 times the cost of disagreeing with someone, Versus if you agree with them, uh, even if they're saying something that's false and you have very little consequence in saying that thing that is false, then that cynical calculation is going to be made by many people. Mm-hmm. And so you get this phenomenon in which uh, a small ideological minority is able to take over and wield larger and larger uh, institutions and enforce a greater and greater hegemony. However, Uh, this is going to vary from institution to institution. The exact way that it manifests uh, in politics, for example, is going to be different than how it manifests in a corporate boardroom, which is going to be different from how it manifests in uh, campuses, right? So Mm -hmm. the core guiding principle, I think, when it comes to uh, undoing this root problem is to look at the phenomenon. The phenomenon is an incentive game, and to undo it, you undo the incentive game. Now, this has two components, and people are going to disagree in how far you go in each of these two components. I think the less controversial one is protection, standing up for those who uh, dissent, standing up for, uh, for those who present evidence, particularly against uh, obviously false accusations, yeah. creating like a, a Cancellation
0: greater... insurance.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Creating greater opportunities for them, creating... Uh, Situations and organizations that could help them, like Fire, the Foundation for Individual Rights and in Education, uh, run by Greg Lukianoff, now, for example, uh, and really providing an active counterweight. Uh, people who disagree with this are mainly going to be on the sort of uh, reactionary conservative side that are saying that you're just creating another institution that's waiting to be taken over, and that mm-hmm. that's somewhat of a concern. But uh, if you apply the other principles, the other actions in a way that would keep this institution from taking over, then there is a significant inroad to be made uh, by that side. But the more controversial uh, thing that many are suggesting now, uh, many of those who are on the on the more right wing side, and actually much fewer of those who are on the uh, therapist side or on the uh, on the free speech absolutist side, is that. Unfortunately, you do have to go after many of these ind- people as individuals in terms of changing the incentive structure involved. Now, I talked about the problem with dealing with them in individuals in the sort of therapeutic lens, and the sort of dialogue sense, in that it doesn't actually change the broader calculation of decisions that are being made. However, many of the actual things that can be done to change those in- incentives are, unfortunately, things that we wouldn't normally want to do in ordinary situations socially ostracizing people for believing in these kind of quote-unquote woke conspiracy theories, uh, calling for, uh, quite frankly, mutually assured cancellation, for example, Mm -hmm. uh, going after people's employment if they are willing to go after others' employment, uh, are going to be things that uh, people disagree with, people disagreeing with it on principle. Mm -hmm. However, I think just in the way that you would be Uh, justified in shooting someone who is uh, pointing a gun at you, you are uh, more than uh, justified in calling for a mutually assured cancellation. And so this rebalancing of the scales is the major, uh, major common principle that can be used in terms of looking at each of these institutions.
0: So there's a counterweight that's uh, a network of support And uh, probably embedded in that is a bunch of tools for argumentation and this kind of this liberal apparatus or toolkit. And then the other option is a counter pillory where uh, we we create another town square with a nice little scaffold there and a bucket of rotten vegetables to pelt (laughs) at uh, the the offenders of our values.
1: Yeah. And quite frankly, I'm honestly much more willing to go through this uh sort of um incentive rebalancing than i think most people are even those who are more politically involved or more directly involved in the uh kind of cultural fights because Mm. i think for many of them there's a there's a gut reaction to the don't be as bad as them appeal right but i think the thing that those people miss or there are two things that those people miss. One of which is that um, shooting someone who is pointing a gun at you is not the same as shooting someone who is doing nothing, right? That there is no uh, moral equivalence to be drawn. It's kind of like the core uh, Kantian flaw of uh, of would you tell a would you tell a murderer where your friend is hiding, right? Context matters, and the context of uh, going after someone who is going after you is. A world apart from just going after someone in a vacuum and so that would be the foundational moral appeal that i'm making to those wings yeah. who would disagree on on those fronts
0: the it's second interesting.
1: is that sorry
0: go ahead you you would have to uh and this is this is one problem with uh, motivating or incentivizing that is that you would have to really prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that people are being hunted down and they are but that that narrative is constantly being papered over uh, cancel culture is always being kind of forgotten and eroded by our uh, attention spans and a lot of other things. So you'd really have to cement the idea. Uh, you know, even, even the president of the United States got banned from a social media platform. And that was kind of not a big deal a week later. So you really have to cement that idea.
1: Yeah, the question of salience is certainly one that I want to answer later on, because that's actually I think the major political innovation of the last two decades, but uh the other thing that I wanted to talk about with regards to the original question is that there's a self termination to the to the turn another cheek liberalism, right? That is the very thing that is being cannibalized now, right That was the status quo, that was the approach that people had uh, to these uh left wing extremists uh even before. Mm -hmm. all of this started springing up, right? So that was already the approach that people were trying to quote-unquote treat it with and the result is the world that we live in now. The result is not only ineffective but self-destructive in terms of uh, giving people who are willing to exploit your grace uh, exactly the rope that they need to hang you with, right? So that would be the other appeal that I would (laughs) really want to make. And the reason why I'm making these kind of explicit call-outs to what I assume are parts of your audience is because especially on Clubhouse uh, and especially on various uh, communications and crossovers with people who are uh, fighting these fights, I think the most important thing that can be done is to unify these three groups, to unify the therapists, the free speech absolutists, Mm. and the reactionary conservatives in a way that takes a solid calculated look at the institutions and understands what's to be done with it as a appro- as opposed to um the scattershot of ideas many of which are self-destructive that mm-hmm. end up uh that end up losing the game i think
0: i think uh, in a way um I keep, I always go back to my wow days, but you need to have, you need to have like a kind of a stacked front where you have the tanks in the front, the the bulls in the China in, in front, and then the DPS, which would be the liberals with all their fancy rhetoric and sophistry and, and all these ideas. And then the healer in back that's taking in the wounded and mending everybody else. Up, but the thing is, is that the healers uh, really don't like the methodology of the of the bulls at all, and they yeah. get really offended. And then the liberals like kind of tend to want to be the pacemakers and so defer to you know they, they they're always like the weakest link, always. You know, because they, they, they're seeing both sides, you know, and then they try to facilitate. You know, uh, do I be polite? Uh, but we need to be rude. You know, because it's it's focused outward. It's not focused towards us. It's focused at this institution. So it, there there are a lot of psychological problems with getting those three to to get along because they end up doing a lot of fighting amongst themselves.
1: Yeah, who would have thought that it's harder to organize people with principles than people without principles? <laughs>
0: It's got to be like an Art of War thing. Are you drawing upon your Art of War days?
1: I don't n- know because <laughs> the Art of War kind of—I mean, there's still a lot of value to it, but there's a bit, there's quite a bit of the Art of War that relies on having a rational opponent, and yeah, that's not okay. necessarily what we are facing now, and that's okay. a core divergence from those things, right? I think there are certain techniques that you end up using, especially in like micro-conversations, that really put you at risk if you're dealing with a rational opponent. But many of these sort of extremists either on the left or the right, with whenever you're debating them, they're not going to go for the obvious logical call-out because they're simply unable to. And so there, there are certain risks that you would take uh, that uh, Sun Tzu would never take.
0: Hmm. One other argument that needs to be made in order to facilitate, uh, you know, some sort of charter for these three groups that we're talking about to kind of come together for a limited period of time in order to defeat this uh, systemic problem would be to really thoroughly uh, set in place structures to defend against corruption of both of those uh, things. So we don't want to, uh, we don't want pillory to, the pillaring to go an inch further than it has to. We we don't want like that 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 counter cancel culture to 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 be corrupted in itself and just become about vengeance. We also don't want this yeah. uh, system of support and shielding to be corrupted, again, either by uh, over-compassion or by nefarious principles or just a bunch of grifters going in there and, and, and siphoning the resources out of there. So you really would need to have this uh, kind of this code of conduct or some sort of charter against corruption of those two things and, like, really make that appeal to the people to say, listen, you know, we're doing this, and we're not going to do it any further. We're doing this thing, and it's a it's a clean, efficient way of uh, ensuring our victory.
1: Yeah, like it's almost as if we need a top down, organized hierarchy.
0: <laughs> Is this where you start? Uh, you you take off your clothes, and you're wearing some lobster uh, negligee. Is that the point in the conversation? We're in? I
1: don't I don't get that reference.
0: I'm just referencing Jordan Peterson. Hierarchies and lobsters
1: okay wait what does what does Peterson have to do with lobsters? Uh,
0: he made an argument at some point about hierarchy and how it's been with us since lobsters or even lobsters have a hierarchy <laughs> because of dopamine and then his fanboys just ran with it and then just mimified the whole thing so that's kind of where that's from
1: yeah i I really see the whole Peterson movement though as a as an understandable I don't want to say reaction, but a understandable outcome of much of what is what has been done in academic thought, which is that I think what's been done in academic thought around morality in the past two centuries is a sort of half hyper-sociopathy, half hyper-sensitivity, um, in which People became completely desensitized to uh, some of the moral foundations, right? Jonathan Haidt's uh, moral foundations, although not in those, not in the terms that he used, uh, where you had a very real attack against appeals tr- to tradition, appeals to uh, authority, and of course, all of these moral appeals, whether they be uh, loyalty, tradition, uh, purity or sorry, loyalty, purity, authority, or whether they be uh, liberalism, kindness, and equality, all these appeals are heuristics. They're things that give you a lot of simplicity, a lot of usefulness, and that have a small amount of error wrapped into them, right? So they are trades in that form. And it's very easy, especially now in our culture, and this is something that's been built up in academic thought, of easily identifying where tradition fails, where those errors lie and understanding Mm -hmm. implicitly that these things are that these things are often false right or not often false i shouldn't say that but are uh, but can be used in a false way yeah but there's not that equal understanding on the other side right there's not that equal understanding of the fact that compassion that empathy is likewise a heuristic is likewise a thing that is often useful helps you identify a problem that's happening and identify in some times, in some terms, how to solve the problem, but can also go overboard, can also be hijacked, which is exactly what you've seen in, for example, the coddling of the American mind. Mm-hmm. Empathy becomes hijacked. Uh, people become incentivized to uh, prevent their children from taking risks. This is because they care about their children, but this ends up with the children being underdeveloped and unable to function in the real world. And it the also leads
0: to oppression yeah. Olympics because it incentivizes uh, victimization, because then you get a bunch of cared points or caring points.
1: Yeah, and, and in politics, it actually just completely falls apart. Um, but hmm. there's not this easy understanding of, uh, oh, you're making appeals to tradition and that's not necessarily true, that might be a bit flawed if you don't provide more evidence. We don't have that gut reaction when someone says, why don't you be more empathetic? And I know for many of the people who are listening to this, even people who ab- agree with you or me, would say, "Oh, that's awfully that's awfully cold-hearted for you to say." And quite frankly, it is. But it's equally as cold-hearted to say, "Like, oh, your appeal to tradition—that's a little bit—that's uh, going to be flawed in some ways, right?" We should have an equal response to those types of things as we historically, I think, in human society, have had, right? That's the evolutionary tendency for those heuristics to balance out. But when mm. you have this Uh, initially it was just a very uh, sociopathic look at tradition, or you can say in a more generous term, an analytic look at tradition, but without the equal balancing of an analytic look at uh, compassion or an analytic look at the appeals to equality, then those appeals end up taking over. Those appeals end up hijacking uh, the discourse in a way that has no counterbalance. So in order to, I think... And this is a role that Peterson serves incredibly well. Even though I don't agree with him on all of his points, uh, you have to either insert back the role of tradition, insert back the role of those counter, uh, veiling counterbalancing moral appeals, or you have to, uh, quite frankly, behave analytically and looking at all aspects. And as long as that kind of equilibrium isn't achieved, I think there'll always be a role for uh, people like Jordan.
0: Mm -hmm. Do you... you, This is a veiled question about optimism, but do you think that human beings or society will be self-correcting? Do you think that, let's just say, in the derogatory form, wokeness will burn itself out, the radical left will eat its own? Do you think that the correction is inevitable um and that the the real question is to uh, limit the damage of of the overreach or do you think that it's all going to go down if it's not stopped it's going to take
1: I mean, everything i mean there are a lot of corrections and some of them look like a less organized version of china and some of them look like a more organized version of afghanistan and I don't think either of those corrections are what we're going for. Um, <laughs> I, I think that there's going to be, we're going to at some point figure out the answer. There's okay. going to be a lot of damage, and, and or there has already been a lot of damage. Yeah. And I'm not sure that you will call or that you will have the same conception of America by by the end of it that is to say i i think it'll fix itself eventually i don't think this leads to an extinction event in any terms okay but there's a lot of things that people are not willing to recognize are being put on the table not just free speech but uh freedom of association of uh quite frankly not living in either china or afghanistan right if, if you actually look at Lives that people are living in those countries and many things that you would assume as a default if you're an American are just not there. And I think that just looking at those two models gives you an understanding that there's a very far way to fall without losing, like, quote-unquote, civilization. But that falling that distance also is not a future that we want. And quite frankly, I don't know the exact kind of likelihoods but I think it's more likely that we end up in. I think it's more likely that we end up in worse China or better Afghanistan, slightly better Afghanistan, than we end up, for example, um, in a more optimistic branch, right? In a in a branch where there's a big political movement, we rally around it, we uh, manage to uh, restore restore common ground, restore uh, truth and objectivity, and we uh, we end up relatively unscathed as opposed to those two options right i think the latter i think the option of actually i don't i have no clue which one is more likely between worse afghanistan or or uh or sorry worse china or better afghanistan
0: could but you I think could those you describe are, those uh, either of those uh dystopias briefly
1: yeah well worse on? china is like an authoritarian state that uh that essentially monitors all of its citizens that has strong enforcement of various opinions, but isn't completely, isn't completely like dictatorial esque. uh, has a lot of top down control, has very targeted, uh, technocratic, uh, rule from the top, uh, and, uh, where people's liberties are, uh, restricted, but those are mostly kind of hidden behind a curtain instead, instead of like actively having a gun pointed at you, for example, uh, or uh, slightly better Afghanistan is like um, a country that eventually goes to war and with itself that is extremely destabilized by outside forces that has constant struggles over power and I think the slightly better version of that would be what would be that but people are a bit wealthier.
0: Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. So if. If you had like god power and you could craft a republic uh, or uh, craft a from from this point forward, uh, you for you you somehow had a magic machine that created the 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 restitution of our republic. What would that look like? Ideally, what what would you work for if you had any optimistic bone in your body?
1: Well, there are a lot of core principles that I would jump to at first, and. Many of them can be gamified, but I would certainly have a much broader uh, definition of free speech, including on uh, on certain platforms. Quite frankly, I think that certain platforms should probably, at the very least, have a national or public alternative, um, which is actually like a really left-wing idea. But I think mm. I, I think the right-wingers can be sold on it, given the current situation. Um, mm. Yeah, a lot more the socialized a lot more public social media. Infras- yeah, a lot more public infrastructure in terms of communications, I think, okay. uh, as well as in terms of things like uh, banking, in terms of things like like everything that's being manipulated now. Uh, that, that's kind of the first the first thing that comes to mind. Okay, uh, that's just the cl- sort of governance or media as- or n- not the media aspect of it actually, but the governing or infrastructure aspect of it. Uh, I think I would have a pretty similar democratic system uh with a bit of sortition involved which is essentially uh instead of a lot of the administrative positions the sort of appointees that you would have uh, essentially being uh a, being directly connected to the presidency i think i would have um a randomly selected group of people who pass a certain bar for example can pass a basic competency test and then you pick a random group of people from that pool and maybe the Mm. president chooses from those or whatever executive position chooses from those uh just as a function of making corruption much more difficult Hmm. Uh, actually this came up uh this came up in a conversation between i think cal newport and lex fridman where he talked about most computer science problems Uh, being in this class of actually... Or, sorry, most lower bounds... Or, sorry... uh, Most upper bounds... Wait. Yeah, most upper bounds of computer science problems tend to be very fragile. So what that means is that the kind of worst-case scenario for how long will it take to solve this problem uh, are usually very easily interfered with by just changing, like, a small amount of the data, right? And so... I have this philosophy in governments uh, that is quite similar of adding random noise functions to mess with people who want corruption, of mm. adding just uh, ways to insert tiny amounts of randomness that reduce the overall performance of a given role of a given kind of bureaucracy or a given government function by a very small amount, but can make it much more difficult to uh, much more difficult to corrupt. Yeah, and d- I think I would just. I, I would have, like, something that looks mostly like America, but with very inconspicuous noise functions put into various <laughs> places.
0: I think, I think that's a really smart idea, and it uh, reminds me of uh, one of those Greek city-states um, had a kind of a circular uh, rotation of everybody was a landowner, everybody was a voter, qualified to be a citizen, so-called... Would come up to some sort of officiating capacity uh, several times in their life, there was just this lottery going on where they shared responsibility. If we could do that even on the local level, uh, conscript uh, experts to solve problems in a way, uh, maybe even like package that in with uh, student loan forgiveness uh, where we'll, we'll we'll clear your uh, We'll we'll clear your, we'll pay for your degree, but you have to serve. Yeah, you're pay, you're
1: being somewhere. paid in you're being paid in uh, credit or being paid in uh, money or for debt forgiveness for doing public service, which I think you should be paid for, right? So yeah, yeah. yeah that's certainly
0: something that is very interesting. So your podcast. Could you plug it and give uh, the audience an overview of what you're tackling and how you're saving the world, one uh, microphone-laden broadcast at a time?
1: Yeah, so the podcast is MetaPolitics, M-E-T-A, Space Politics. And I've gone through a series of seasons. The first season was really on corruption and electoral systems, how those dynamics play out. The second was in media, the kind of economic incentives at play, and some of the psychological biases that happen. And now the most recent season is about narrative warfare, about the way that political incentives end up uh, leading people to manipulate media further and further. And I think the core appeal to it is that many people, including elected representatives, come up to me and they say, like, this phenomenon makes no sense. This thing that's happening is absolutely crazy. And I'm like, yes it is. But people tend to do crazy things and here's why. And that's that sort of the the elevator pitch for the show. That mm-hmm. I think there's a lot to be understood and that the information is out there, right? This isn't like groundbreaking research. This is pretty basic psychology, pretty basic economics that, in, that explains um very advanced political phenomena and how to get out of it. And I think anyone who wants to wants that rationality in their life, I guess, wants that, um, wants that way out would enjoy the podcast.
0: And aside yourself, who are, uh, the thought leaders that you jive with the most and that you wish more people would be paying attention to?
1: Yeah, usually, I don't know. I feel like the instinct to this would be to shout out someone who's lesser known, but, I'm actually just not, unfortunately, not that involved in the politics community. I like to put out my ideas, but I'm not too social in those environments. So most people have probably already heard of these, but uh, Tristan Harris, Center for Humane Technology, Social Dilemma guy, really great at breaking down the influence of technology uh, in various aspects. Um, Jonathan Heights. Is the kind of go-to psychology guy, Moral Foundations, yeah. The Righteous Mind, Coddling American of the American Mind with uh, Greg Lukianoff. He's an excellent leader in terms of uh, thinking about this in terms of the psychological attributes that people have, in terms of the way that they develop their kind of ultimate uh, their ultimate worldview and their ultimate political opinions. And yeah, I'm just really trying to come up with someone someone obscure. Yeah,
0: but quite frankly, Chomsky? I there's
1: I don't know. Chomsky has a piece of the puzzle, but hmm. I don't know. I think I think Tristan Harris has has certainly one of the best insights, and he has a he has a podcast that people don't really pay that much attention to, and he doesn't hmm. really promote it himself, but it's quite good. It's called Your Undivided Attention. And, uh, of course, Benjamin Boyce, uh, oh, excellent well. <laughs> uh, commentator. <excellent, laughs> you don't have to uh, plug me on my own channel. <laughs> <laughs> Too bad, you're being plugged on your own channel. <laughs> excellent commentator, documentarian, understands the soul of the current cultural moments, and uh, hmm. really does a great job in putting together, I think, a full mosaic of uh, what everyone uh, what everyone is working on. <laughs>
0: I have my fingers on the prostate of the cultural zeitgeist. <laughs> um, <laughs> do you think you'll be turning uh, your work into a book or like a coffee table book or, or a series of articles? Do you think you'll jump media in that way?
1: Yeah, I'm actually in the process of writing a book. I don't know. I don't know if I'll ever get it published because it's huh. probably controversial-ish. But, oh. um I mean, even more controversial than what we're working on now because I think the things that I kind of want to... Actually, the the scenario that I think is the most likely to shoot for, and this is something that I don't really talk about often, but, and this is, like, very controversial, is probably in a world where you're probably going to end up in a world, and this is, like, the optimistic one, even though it still sounds like a dystopia. (laughs) You're probably going to end up in a world where the, the people who are willing to seek out independent information are going to have to be the ones to contribute to a kind of decentralized narrative warfare where you're going to have everyone doing narrative warfare and you're going to have a lot of stupid people doing narrative warfare for certain political interests. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be up to the smart people who understand, and I, I use smart people like very broadly, right? Like anyone who like sees past the very simplistic narrative. So like, I think there are quite a, quite many smart people in the world, but people who see past the simplistic narrative, the narrative warfare that's currently being used, to understand that they themselves have to use many of these tools to reorganize uh, some of what happens, to, quite frankly, be emotionally manipulative in similar ways, but in terms of in favor of issues, or in favors of positions that are actually backed by uh, by. Objectivity they're actually backed by like actual science not like the fucking science TM um, mm-hmm. but uh, I think fight sophistry writing, with fof-
0: sophistry then
1: yeah, I, th- I think that The thing I'm going to write is going to be heavily focused on those dynamics on The actual narrative warfare itself. It's going to touch on many of the topics on the podcast I'm just still like I'm just still roadmapping it now, but uh, yeah, I'm certainly interested on in creating a creating a simple package. Or I, I don't want to say simple either, but a, a package version of the book that isn't actually like five hours of audio spread across dozens of episodes. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What What are some of the central tools or values? of being aware of the narrative warfare that's happening and combating it. Uh, I guess, uh, aside from just unplugging your phone and not watching any news, what can the average person do to um, be a more uh, positive contributor to the betterment of the information economy?
1: Yeah, I mean, one is the thing that we talked about earlier, which is to recognize the incentive game. To recognize the things that are probably running through, at the very least, the board members, if not the individual journalists, of every single uh, news institution, and hmm. just to recognize the game that's being played. Right, this is actually like a very basic sort of broader media literacy thing: is to to understand what uh, to understand what people are trying to get you bo- to believe, to understand their motive. Uh, in hmm. terms of actually contributing and making things a uh, better place. Uh, There are certain uh, statistical or scientific methods that you can use to try to make sure that you're collecting good information, things ranging from very basic things like the scientific method to various uh, statistical analyses that you can do if you're uh, so inclined of actually making sure that your information is accurate and your information is representative of some broader trend. Hmm. Um, Hmm. And really, just quite honestly, just sharing ideas of... it doesn't take a lot to be better than many of the existing, uh, existing kind of legacy rejects. media. Yeah. yeah, and in fact, I think that like, would I trust the average person? I don't know, because there's so much there's so much baked into that phrase, right? Like the average person, like the average person probably watches CNN, so I'm probably not sure if that makes them more trustworthy than CNN. But would would I trust the average independent creator? more than like some of these objectively or not objectively but like with a very high degree of likelihood you can say that most of these institutions are actively politically motivated and that anyone who even shows like their process shows their um, methods of getting to a given conclusion especially if those conclusions are as i talked about before scientifically sound are probably more trustworthy than the state of American media, I think, so that's that's the unfortunate reality is that at the very least the current state, just like doing something is is very good for the <laughs> environment
0: <laughs> just exercise just fifteen minutes of free thought a day
1: yeah actually this is this is something that I think uh and that uh Eric Weinstein has said, which is that. You can just try to try to compile the source code, right? Try to compile the arguments that you get together, and if if they create something that's coherent, then you mm. can just like put that as a data point that these set of ideas, this ideology or this uh, this political policy, uh, this this compiles, this six this can successfully put itself together, and that mm. just doing that itself is already is al- already cuts like ninety percent of the political field, right? <laughs> Hmm. So mm-hmm. putting those data points out for your friends, for your own social network, is probably something that is an incredibly productive use of your time.
0: Do you have any uh, weird hobbies?
1: Uh, yeah, I play Super Smash Bros. Melee for the Nintendo GameCube.
0: Uh, by yourself or against yourself? Or do you have uh, like a club? You can
1: play it online uh, with an emulator with a, with oh. a very legally obtained ROM. <laughs> very legal
0: because Nintendo is so not open a, It's source. not called a ROM
1: for a GameCube; <laughs> it's called a ISO or whatever. But uh, it's, a, it's a it's a very interesting, albeit old game. It's from like 2001, but um, very enjoyable.
0: <laughs> Where did you? Um, how do I introduce you? Like, what, what's your basic function in the world? Are you a social scientist, economist, chef? congratulations for reaching the end of the discussion if you enjoyed it do be sure to leave a review or a comment or a thumbs up or whatever you need to do to show that glorious algorithm that this is some good stuff and do be sure to go and check that back catalog as it is brimming full of fantastic conversations links to provide monetary support are down there in the description as well have a good night